Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Coming up next on XL Podcast is a good friend, Kapil Kane, who heads up corporate innovation. He's the director of innovation at Intel China. Really what we're going to talk about today is innovation and that journey that he started working at Apple under Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive and the product design team designing iPads, iPods, and later the iPhone, all the way to teaching and encouraging innovation in startups and corporates today. So it's fascinating. When we talk about innovation, we often have ideas of what innovation is. And we go to so many webinars today and events which are about innovation. Yet, what we're going to learn in this conversation with Kapil is that's not necessarily how innovation takes place. Innovation isn't necessarily something that comes with a name on it, as we'll find out that during his time at Apple, they didn't actually call it innovation. And yet here we are with multiple books on innovation. But those guys that were really the gold standard of innovation weren't actually referring to it as such themselves. So what is it? How did they approach, for example, designing the curves and the bevel on an iPhone or making a laptop housing more user-friendly or designing the touchscreen phone? How did they go about that? And also, how do you then apply that to, let's say, creating innovative products and services within a corporate? What is the mindset that you need? And to what extent do you need to approach that from an engineer's mindset? You know, how would you solve this problem as an engineer, as an entrepreneur, and then also potentially from a metaphysical or spiritual approach? What can we learn from Buddhism or Hinduism or Zen about design? And how does that also link all the way back to designing phones and Apple? And even before that, building cars and car interiors. There's so much that we're going to learn today about innovation with Kapil. So, Enjoy this podcast. So, Kapil, welcome to the podcast. Bit of a random question, but I would like to know, or can you maybe describe for us that moment when you were working at Apple as an intern and Steve Jobs came and sat down next to you? I think you were sitting outside having a, your lunch or something. I just, it's a memory, memory that stuck with me when you told the story before, and I just kind of want to share it with the audience here. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about your, your work with Apple and now, obviously, in the space of entrepreneurship. But how old were you back then when you were out in Cupertino? Wow. Um, maybe 20 years or so. Uh, mm. You yeah, were 20. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I used to be. Now I'm like twice as old as that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, the, the first thing uh, I was thinking when I saw Steve Jobs approaching is, please, please not let him not sit at my table. And right. because that was the only seat that, that the table was empty. 
Um, and as he approached, you know, my heart started beating harder because people used to be very scared to en- encounter Steve because he might ask a difficult question. And if you can't answer it, there are these legends that, you know, you could get fired on the spot. Wow. Uh, and yeah. Uh, and, and the first thing uh, I, I told him is that I, I'm just an intern. I don't know why those words came out, but I, I said, I'm, I'm just an intern. Did so you off I think the hook too- when you said that? No. So, so uh, he said, uh, uh, yeah, because he, he comes and gives talks to all the interns. We have this mm. huge intern program. Um, and he said, I'll be giving talks to all the interns uh, pretty soon. Mm. And then he asked me what I was working on. Uh, and I told him what I was working on. And he's like, okay, keep, uh, he didn't, you know, talk too much. And then, you know, he carried on, I carried on. Uh, but I was really scared. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a difficult yeah. question could he have asked you? Uh, have really he could have said, uh, you know, he could have like criticized uh, a design choice we might have made on a product. Mm. He could have talked about uh, issues we are having uh, with the field returns. That was a huge thing is whenever a new product was launched, uh, the first few months, first few weeks, people would return uh, the laptops mm. with certain problems. And uh, that's what I was working on. Uh, we called early field failure analysis is to look at all the complaints uh, along with the units that have been returned and try to debug and figure out what went wrong. Was it a, a design issue? Was it a quality issue or was it an assembly issue? And we had to figure things out and then also figure out whether we need to stop the, the production happening in Asia or, or do we have a fix? How do we roll it in? So, um, yeah, so we were under a lot of pressure to quickly mm. debug and figure things out. And, and, and for me, since I was part of the design group, for me, the best outcome is that it's a quality issue that, you know, they did not make part to specification. Um, but yeah, our goal was to find the truth and truthfully figure mm. out, you know, what to do. And I was afraid he might ask a question about why, why. And at that time, we used to have these feet uh, at the bottom of the laptops and those feet were glued, glued in and mm. the feet were falling off. And that was like a huge deal. And I was like, please don't ask about, ask me about that. <laughs> <The feet. laughs> hey, you boy, yeah. are you the one responsible <laughs> for the feet? Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. this was pre, I mean, you know, if you're going back, you're pre-iPhone, pre-iTunes, um, pre. pre-iPod, iPod was just launched. Really? Okay. So Mm -hmm. early 2000s. I don't remember. Maybe it was, uh, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Mm. Uh, This was in 2003, 2003, summer of Okay, right right, right on the cusp. Yeah. 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 So you were still pretty much a laptop desktop company back Uh, then? Yes. Uh, Yes. iPod was our first product that was not a laptop or desktop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Early days. But what was the climate like back then in terms of innovation? And this is something that mm. people will probably be surprised to hear is that we've chatted about this, that people look at Apple as the paragon of innovation, pushing the boundary. And yet you told me that in your internal conversations, you never even mentioned the word. I mean, this is pre sort of lean startup days. And when people are talking about really naming a lot of what they were doing the startup scene hadn't taken off by 2003 obviously twitter facebook 
several, you know, a couple of years yet before they hit the mainstream. And even this idea of MVP or those kind of agile architectures, which are so common now, mm -hmm. back then were very rare. I mean, we're still used to this very product development waterfall style model of creating new products and innovations and so on. But when mm -hmm. you said that, you know, you went back and looked at all your emails or looked at your correspondence and you couldn't find that word, I was shocked. How, how would you yeah. actually, I mean, how can you talk about innovation without actually talking about innovation, if you know what I mean? Mm. Is that possible? You know, we, uh, it's funny, you know, this last weekend, I gave a talk at China Accelerators. Uh, they have this thing called 8 by 8 where they bring in eight mentors and have them speak for eight minutes about uh, their, they call them war stories. And uh, for this particular one, I spoke about uh, the philosophy, the Zen philosophy of product design. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the things I was telling them that you need to have patience if you are to create great products uh, and which goes completely against this idea of lean startup, you know, like go out and, uh, this this business model and test and do all that. It, it was completely, we didn't even know at that point what a business model was. Uh, I think we're simply driven by two things. One is having uh, a, a goal, which, 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 you know, which Steve or Johnny, Steve would come up with this product idea, right? Like we, uh, let's say for iPod, it was uh, putting a thousand songs in our pocket so that you can carry all your favorite musics with you. And we were driven by that goal uh, to create the best product uh, that meets that goal. When it came to iPad, it was putting all the books on your fingertips. And uh, that's, that's the kind of the, the vision that Steve created. And then everyone was bought into that vision, whether they liked it or not. It was like a cult. Really, it was like, you know, we would, Steve's words are like, you know, true and final. And we had John, Johnny Ive who was responsible for the, for the design, for the user experience. And, and they would come up with how to translate that vision into something tangible. And for the rest of the, the, the team, they were devoted to bringing that vision to life and whatever it took. Uh, and we were always challenged. You know, for example, let's say when, when they said, we are going to create a phone and we'll have we'll cover it with glass on every single surface. That would be for an engineer. They, it, it's crazy to think that you. How can you protect something that's made out of glass on mm. every single surface, right? Uh, but we would rise up to the challenge and try to find a way to make it, or try, try, try and show that it cannot be made. There was there was no pre. There's not like, you know, oh, I know it from the past project. It doesn't work. We didn't have that kind of a thinking. Uh, so we would find different ways to make things happen, make things possible. And I think what we were doing was trying something that was never done before. We just didn't label it as innovation mm. or we, there were no labels back then. It's, it's so funny. You know, when I look at my, my past life, even pre doing innovation at, at Intel, there were no this labeling things, you know, and and right now we have gotten into the habit of labeling things like coming up with buzzwords, putting people into boxes, um, and 
uh, that didn't exist before, right? So now everyone wants to, for their own sake of understanding, they want they're creating all these these mm. labels, yeah. Uh, but we simply, you know, did just whatever did we just yeah just just did yeah. it yeah yeah yeah. I worked a lot with Red Bull over the years. And they were always the gold standard of marketing in the same way that Apple's the gold standard of innovation and product design. It's interesting when you talk to a lot of Red Bull people, there's a lot of similarities in terms of their culture, mm. that it's very much everybody's on a mission. Everybody believes. You can imagine Red Bull people, I mean, they don't necessarily drink Red Bull so much, but they're all into extreme sports. You know, they've all got like their tattoos and those big piercings and all those kind of like earrings, the, the plugs, you know, not the rings, but the big holes in their ears. Mm. That's their scene. They, they live and breathe that. And when you actually talk to them and talk about marketing as if you were reading it out of a book, you know, you're talking about engagement and you're talking about many of the things that we would talk about now in marketing, which are normal. They would sit and look at you quite blank faced and think, not sure. For them, they were just doing it. They spent, some of them spent 10, 20 years in the field, whether it's at ski events or jumping off cliffs, base jumping, and all these kind of crazy events. They never thought of it in those contexts, those concepts. So when somebody came along and gave her a name, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand. You're putting it in a box. Mm. But they didn't need a box. And that was always found fascinating because those people that kind of defined industries never really boxed things. I mean, there may be exceptions. I mean, you look at, for example, Toyota and the lean management mm. philosophy. But I guess in the early days, they didn't. They just did it. And then they thought, actually, we need to kind of put some architecture in place or maybe for mm. other people to understand it. I wonder if, well, I mean, we're going to get into this talking about in the corporate world as well, whether innovation... Mm is really what we think it is you know we look at for example at startups mm -hmm. and we you've mentioned for example that sort of lean agile startup movement going mm -hmm. out and just smashing things breaking things mm -hmm. and uh, maybe that's not innovation maybe that's not mm -hmm. real true entrepreneurship who knows so i want to discuss that as well but that sort of mm -hmm. background that you had at apple um Getting into that, you you didn't necessarily come from the world of technology, did you? You were into product design and cars as well. Is that sort of what's your style oh, in Apple? You come from that world. I seem to remember you had something to do with cars <laughs> way back. No, no, I, I come from the world of uh, mechanical engineering, designing physical things, um, and design was all always my my specialty. Hmm. Um, so my first job out of school was designing interiors of cars. So interiors, uh, interiors of cars, Specifically like, you know, what things would you be designing? Seats, seats, wow. um, seats and uh, dashboards and like overhead lights. Um, it's very mechanical intensive design. And I, I believe that experience of designing plastic parts is what got me into Apple. Um, so this was 2003, uh, I think the bubble had just burst, the mm. internet bubble, the economy was like down and there were very few companies hiring non-citizens at that time. So when they came, when the companies 
all of all the companies that came to our campus to recruit interns, I was eligible only for two. There was Apple, and then there was Applied Materials. This is in Stanford. Yeah, yeah. Right. And by the way, for those that don't know, you're originally from India. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I grew up in India. Uh, on the that meant you would have been harder yeah. for you to get a job, right? That's kind of the scene. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So not not being a U.S. Uh, citizen, uh, I remember a lot of my uh, Indian friends at the time they went back to India for the summer or did something mm-hmm. odd or even stayed in school and took some classes. Uh, but luckily, there were the two companies that were accepting applications from non-citizens and. Uh, Apple was one. Applied Materials was the, another one. And when they interviewed me, and they had a very long process of interviews. They were like two. Uh, I think Evans and Katie. They came on campus, and and one of the questions they asked, they they just showed me a bunch of pl- parts, plastic parts from from the old iBooks, and they asked me to spot some of the mistakes in the design. Mm. Uh, and how I would improve those designs. And I was like, oh, this is not a mistake, but you could do it in a much easier way. What did you say? And see? I think, uh, you know, when you see like this plastic housings, um, if, uh, you know, it's just like a cup, right? If you see a cup, uh, mm. it's made from a mold and there's a female mold and a male mold, right? And the plastic stays between. So you inject plastic in between when it cools, you get the mold off and then you pick the, pick up the plastic part. But if there are some intricate things, you know, that stick out, you're not able to get it out without breaking that piece, which is kind of sticking out. And so then you need to comp- make your design complicated that there are like something called slides that uh, once you pour the plastic, after it cools, you get the slides off and then you remove male and female part. So uh, I saw a lot of those, we call them un- uh, undercuts. And I saw a lot of those undercuts, which could have been uh, designed in a way that could have been made it easier to build. And so I pointed it out and they were like, wow, okay, no one has actually answered this question so far. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That must yeah. have made it feel uh, good. But that's, yeah. that's from years of looking at interiors of cars, I imagine. Like, you no, know, two years. <laughs> I was there oh. only two years. Yeah. But two that was years enough, and, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, uh, a lot of times you might... Uh, if you don't really have experience with real world, how things are built, you can sit in front of the computer and design all you want. Yeah. Uh, but the real test comes when you try bring that, you know, your vision into reality, right? And for that, you need some uh, real life experience. And I think that's what uh, helped me because a lot of my friends after my undergrad, they straight away went to grad school um, in the US. Hmm. Uh, but I... I really wanted to work and get some experience in 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 the field of this design and cars, uh, and I think maybe that's what really helped me uh, find myself into Apple. And mm. it's funny, I didn't know Apple at all uh, until I had come uh, to the US. Uh, not not to the US, not even to the US, but, uh, to the Stanford campus, uh, because uh, I did not have a computer and and. To do the assignments, I had to go to the computer lab, and I saw this weird-looking computer with, like, you know, a mouse having no buttons, and that's when I really found out what Apple was, and I just learned enough to use it. Mm. and And until Apple came to the campus, I didn't know what other products they were making. I yeah, so other than the 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 iMac that I used in the computer lab, 
I had no clue, but I think it's that wow. insight I had about the, the plastic part. You know, I think that really, you know, uh, let me get in there. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Wow, yeah. what an insight. Yeah. As a designer, what, what's sort of a common design that pisses you off that you might see on phones or cars? So I imagine you, you approach things. Like I'm a storyteller, so when I watch movies, I see things through that lens. I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen next, and I spoil it for everybody. Like, I know what mm. scene's going to happen next, and usually I'm pretty good at, you know, analyzing the scenes to the point where people don't watch movies with me anymore. So I've lost all my movie-watching friends as a result. Mm. <laughs> now, as a designer, what's it like for you, like looking at phones and cars, sort of everyday objects? What for you is sort of an annoyance that you think, come on, guys, you've got to do better this. For me, when I look at a phone, for example, it's the, the USB connectors that I feel. Mm. Come on, man, we've got to do better than this. Oh, you know, there's so many things. I think one of the, uh, the, the downsides of working at Apple uh, doing design is you're never satisfied with anything you see right um you you're quick to criticize things and i think one of the things that bothers me is when the designers don't put enough thought into creating an experience for the users uh so that they can use their products in an easy way something that's intuitive by by doing a little bit of uh, uh thinking they could have made it much easier for the users especially like for example, Ikea, right? When I bring in mm. Ikea furniture, I hate to assemble them because they could have made it in a way that you can't make mistakes, right? You, so uh, one of my biggest pet peeve uh, is that you assemble something and then you figure out that things don't fit. And I was like, why did they not make mm. it such that you couldn't even get the to the next around. step? That's the killer one, yeah. isn't it? The actual two yeah. holes are on the other side, but you didn't know that. Yeah, so maybe like foolproofing a little bit, uh, maybe thinking a little bit about the user experience. Yeah. Uh, those are the kind of the IKEA that, model, you can mm, claim that mm, they're very successful. And to get that kind of user experience and put it into the mm, flat pack mm, model that they have, they, they can't sit around thinking about, you know, how do we make this a beautiful design? You, there's some payoff surely with design or, or is there not? Is that sort of a an outsider's an educated viewpoint about design. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, um, there's always a way to fix things. You know, um, I think one of the lessons uh, that, I, that I learned at uh, Apple is uh, everything you design, you design intentionally. There is nothing like a resultant, you know, for example, the, the shape of the corner, how rounded it is, that has a lot of thought has gone into it. It's not like a resultant of something. And if you, if you really look at it, it's not even a circle. It is a, a, a spline. That means it's a curvature continuous. Uh, oh, I like uh, this. You know, I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when I look at my iPhone now in front of me, mm. tell mm. me about that curve. How, how has that been intentionally designed? I would have thought it's just made sense economically mm -hmm. to design it like that. Mm. Yeah, it you know like all the curves they match their sizes, they are uh, how they are in relationship to each other. Um, because if you just simply uh, like have a line, then a circle and a line to make a corner, there will be a little sharp point uh, because 
the the let's say that it won't be very tangential. Um, your your curvature changes from zero to like some value abruptly, right? When you go mm. from a line to the circle. But when you create a, a spline, that means you'll go from a straight line and you'll slowly, slowly curve it until you reach full curvature and then you kind of slow down. Mm. Uh, so not so so that's one thing. Okay. So they because they they did not want it to look abrupt. The second thing is, if you look at some of the products from when I joined uh, Apple, that's like 2003, we would put a lot of uh, tapes and and uh, we, call, we call them shims, that is, that is little pieces of foams. It was a mess when you looked inside, but no one would look inside, right? Uh, but we changed that because we saw uh, this product take apart showing up on the internet and we didn't like what we saw inside. And since then, even like the inside was very well thought after uh, design, the colors, um, the, uh, the textures, uh, even the colors, we had to quantify it and measure it. Uh, so it's not like black. It's mm. like this exact shade of black uh, and the tolerance on that color is plus or minus something in Lambda, Gamma, Everything had to be quantified. Everything had to be uh, like designed in. Nothing was random, right? So, um, so if if let's say if a simple um, let's say a shelf, an IKEA shelf, an Apple engineer had to design it, he would have designed it in a way that you would not be able to put it together in a wrong way at all in the first place. Uh, so they would have made you know the cuts and things, and they might have provided different screw sizes for like, you know, top shelves and bottom shelf. Uh, here's another thing is that every single screw that's in, in our laptops or our iPhone, they're all custom made screws. You cannot just buy them off the shelf, right? Mm. So it creates a lot of headache when you want to service and stuff, but it, it's a decision we made intentionally because we wanted to do it everything the right way. If the screw doesn't need to be in a millimeter longer, it would not be a millimeter longer. Although we could make like 10 screws common and turn it into one, right? So, so, so that's what I sometimes feel, you know, is why did IKEA do this? You know, now I already, and especially the things that are irreversible, sometimes you need to like, you know, uh, hammer in like a double pin mm. and that's it. You made a mistake and it's gone now. Mm-hmm. What, so it really pisses me off. And a lot of things I've put together for my son is the same thing. You know, why do they use such a cheap, uh, let's say like, you know, like a bracket, they could have done it a little better. So, uh, so, so that's kind of, you know, the, uh, one of the, the, the downsides of uh, having worked in an environment where people obsess about design, right? How does that pay off with being a practitioner as well? Let's talk about your work, working with Intel in GrowthX as well, the corporate accelerator and helping corporates innovate because now you've got this situation where take the ikea mm-hmm. cabinet or bed that you're building for your son for example there's the guy that's designed it and then there's the guy that has to make this thing as well put it into practice mm-hmm. and in innovation if we take it into the world of startups for example that you could argue that design is actually not that important it's the making and, you know, you've just got to make this thing and then worry mm-hmm. about it, what the design looks like afterwards. Case in point, I've been working on a 
a product which I could easily outsource and get somebody to design and build, but this product is effectively, it's a database, a lot of data inside it. Easiest way to spin that up is build it out on WordPress because you've already got the UX designed, it's there for you, the framework's there, the security, the sessions, the authentication's all there, and it's not perfect, nowhere near, but it's easy to just push out, it's very rough and ready. Mm -hmm. You just like, get out. Okay, there it is. Now I can think about what that looks like. So that's sort of a very much a, a founder's stroke entrepreneur's way of thinking of it. Like build that very rough and ready prototype, push it out. And mm. yet you've come from this world where design was very much paramount. And then you, you can see people churning out stuff that's, you know, rough edges, sharp mm. points sticking out. In theory, mm. how do you how do you balance this? That need to get stuff out, IKEA style, at the same time, the need to create beautiful and thoughtful products. Is there a payoff here? And you know, put this into the world of what you do now. How do you think about these things? Yeah, I want to create this really nice product or this really nice technology, but got to get out, got to get it validated soon. Mm. Uh, I think. Let's not, you know, uh, be mistaken that Apple did not build rough prototypes, right? So for to get to the point of turning into, it into a product, we had to go through like tens, hundreds of prototypes. Um, and, you know, we have and even there's this thing that Johnny used to say, design and making go hand in hand. Okay, so. Even before we think of designing an iPhone, we would make an iPhone into a physical product with the exact shape, finish that you would want and touch it, feel it. That's one, one how we did, you know, is, is uh, we call it CMF, color, material, and finish. The second thing we did was we did mock-ups of, for example, uh, putting something a, a, a touchscreen on it that would kind of simulate how something would look. Uh, and uh, so we would do that a lot, a lot and a lot. And this thing keeps happening. So inside our design studio, we have all the machines to build and simulate anything we want. Okay. So we constantly built, constantly uh, played with things, uh, constantly explored ideas. So that process was going on. Once something kind of bubbles up, then we start with something called, uh, we call it like, a, then we'll, we'll do a, a design on CAD. Uh, we, we call it a, a proto build where we will actually build all the internals and stuff and see if does it even go together. Once that stage is passed, we do something called an engineering verification build. Uh, this is where we build maybe like, you know, a hundred of those uh, with, uh, to see does this, engineering makes sense. Can we even engineer this product? And from there, we do a design verification build where we'll build like a thousand uh, and see, can, now that engineering is done, can we actually design such a product with the, in the form factor we want? And from the design verification, we go to production verification. So there's a lot of building there, a lot of iteration there. Uh, the, just that we don't go out to the, to, the, to the customers or out in the world to see, hey, what do you think? And I think this is where you are driven by a vision of a product, right? Uh, so 
you know what you want to build and uh, and you know you are you are willing to wait to make it happen okay so 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 that's 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 the reason why apple could 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 use this approach now if you look at the founders right a lot of them they are looking at they there are a lot of assumptions uh oh i believe there's a this need in the market they're trying to fill some kind of a, a need in the market and they they are driven by maybe an opportunity to do something yeah and that's where you know the goals come in so one of the things also i talked about this last weekend is is the goal for you to have a product what is it like what kind of a goal is it like you know hey there's an opportunity this podcast market is growing i need to create a podcast so then you need to they're like oh then they need to think you know oh, what kind of what am i good at what is the topics and then you try and you know you you go look for those opportunities you kind of like sniffing around and so this why you need to keep coming up with different things versus uh let's say you know when when you wanted to design an uh ipod it was not like you know hey there's an opportunity there in the market sony has a walkman and mm. this that was not the case they they you know jobs was really driven by music and he wished that if 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 you can carry that around with you not just one cd uh, in a discman or or one tape but an entire music library with you it would make people's life much more enjoyable and stuff like that and there there was never like a time to go and like you know they didn't set a time saying hey at this time we need to release this product right and and i think so uh, so i think that the, the at, like the, we were driven more by creating that perfect product to to meet our the goals which i would say are like you know i wouldn't say like noble but they were like really heartfelt goals of of building something of doing something great not thinking about how much money we are going to make is simply putting yourself in the users shoes and feeling the way they would feel having the empathy feeling their pain and and building a product that way so that that's a that's a completely different way of thinking about your design is you don't care about the the money part you just want to build the best product you can build uh and but when you look at the lean startup they tell you exactly the opposite they say yeah you can build a great thing uh, 95% of the products fail because not because your product is bad but because there's no need for your product in the market right and so they're they're driven by hey i got venture capital money i need to do a return on it i uh, uh i have to uh build things that are really wanted so that's the reason you have to keep going out and testing uh that what you're building really can make uh, a business sense and and so i think th- so these are these two different worlds so i think if you look at even dyson right uh, the vacuum cleaner Mm. uh the the way he the way he built it he said he had no business model he doesn't even know how to build a business model but he knew that he wanted to 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 build a product that sucked that d- dirt out right so there's a kind of like you know two different ways of building things and we, i think you know when i think more deeply about this i feel that uh, this approach of lean startup will will help you build a product or uh or a moderately successful product uh but i think to build great products you know you need something very deep 
you need that deep sense um, of goals, why you are doing it. You, you, it's not, not to like make money or not to uh, return on investment or not about um, like capturing a market segment and stuff like that. They, it has to be much deeper, like much nobler. Um, uh, and, and, and then, and I think only then you can be completely devoted to the design. They're coming from two different starting positions, aren't they? These, yeah. These approaches. One is you've got a company that has resources and cash and distribution. And if it didn't mm. work, it didn't work. They could fold that mm. back and still rely on their bread and butter product lines. And then you've got entrepreneurs who don't have resources. And even if they're VC funded, they're on a, you know, they're on a death clock effectively that's ticking down. And they don't have the resources in distribution or even the talent necessarily. And that's why you get typical of China, but we're seeing globally now those startups that don't really have a why, but they simply just iterate on customer problems. Oh, okay. We're mm -hmm. going to do food delivery. We're a taxi ride sharing company. We're a payments company. There's no grand design to that. It's just, okay, you're a customer, you have this problem. I have data about you. What else can I do for you? And if I can do that in a, a better way than this guy, then I'll do it. And if I can make money out of it, great. And that's sort of these two different approaches to innovation, if you like. Mm. They're not necessarily better than each other. This is very different. One is almost bottom mm. up and one is top down, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you've got this situation where you work with corporates. Mm -hmm. which is really interesting because for a long time we've tried, and I say we as the industry and lean startup is part of this, I'm sure, tried to get corporates to think like entrepreneurs and mm. become entrepreneurs, become risk takers and, you know, go out there and fail, fail fast and often. But we, we haven't really seen a lot of great results out of that. You know, we've seen um, a lot of, innovation theater, mm -hmm. but the real hard results that come from the corporate world, they have these people, you know, you work for a corporate, you work for a large IT company, you know, and you've worked at Apple. Now you're Intel, you've got the skills, you've got the talent, you've got the knowledge, and there's a lot of people like you out there, but you know, you're not running startups. So how do you know, how do are you thinking about it the wrong way when it comes to innovation in corporates? What's what have you discovered in your journey in terms of helping or facilitating innovation within corporates? Because you've come from that world of Apple and you've seen this lean startup movement and you've seen that it hasn't gelled completely with corporates. Where have we been going wrong and what needs to change? Mm, I think uh, a few things. Okay. So um, let's say I started this uh, growth ac accelerator uh, or I could we could call it like a corporate innovation platform where we help our employees uh, realize their ideas and, and turn it into something tangible. And what we have seen is that, and I'm very surprised, like six years later, we still have employees coming to this platform to, with their ideas, wanting to build something, wanting to create something. So people 
they they are looking for meaning you know they want to be to be known or they want to be they they want to know what they're doing matters right um if you're always like listening top down and executing onto something i think some people like it if if you know like for for me like personally i really love if i'm given a challenge by my superiors right saying hey uh figure this out and for me that problem solving brings meaning to me uh some people and i think this is this could be uh especially you know maybe true uh maybe between like this dynamics of you know us company in china uh where all the main products are driven from the headquarters people here have ideas people here have opinions people here see things people here are are looking at at the ecosystem and seeing all the innovations happening and they say i can do something here uh, i have these innovations or i have this this technologies in my labs and i can see them landing in the market only if my business unit would listen to me and that's where we come in and we are like without us say let's say without us now they have to create some sort of like a business plan roi um, and and convince their bosses to to give them the resources they need to to make this product uh versus now they come to let's say our program and build not just a business case it's a validated business case with traction with some real learnings from uh from the market and they make a much much stronger case for why they the 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 business unit needs to give them more resources to go big in this right so what so so what we have seen uh, is that typically people may not have all the skills and the tools they know that you know they they know how to build technology you know most of the people at intel are engineers they're really good at technology but they don't have all this business knowledge uh, they don't know what kind of um, how big the market is what kind of market segment are what could be the tam som what are the real pain points in the market that their technology can solve so we give them all these tools to uh, and as well as uh, hands on experience to you use those tools to their project to then grow their ideas and eventually uh help them land them into the market right so uh in that way i think uh it that's the kind of innovation uh, uh that uh we try to enable so basically we're e- enabling and empowering employees to turn their technical ideas into uh to into a business that we can land in the market and we can start generating revenues or growing uh, uh our business right uh there was other kinds of innovations which are like the the moonshots and we tried doing that uh in the beginning uh but what we saw was that we were not good at it here in china you know maybe in the headquarters they're much better at doing those kinds of innovations you know we were we were looking at uh like a drones we were looking at um uh, like service robots those were the initial first few uh i would say the kinds of projects we're looking at when we just started because when you're starting out new in this field of innovation and you see the innovation theater right that that's what that is your uh kind of inspiration or that's what you think about innovation is 
uh, hey, oh, those guys are coming up with cool robots. They're flying those drones there. There's an AI here. And there is innovation center, you know, this innovation center. Mm. A lot of people think that I have an innovation center. They say, can I come to your innovation center? I was like, our innovation center is decentralized. It's spread across our company. Uh, we don't have like a center where you can come and see something, right? Um, so, they're disappointed. But, they, they must want it. That's the idea is that <laughs> innovation comes from this hub, isn't it? Like a skunk works yeah. or a mad scientist lab where all these geniuses hang out. Uh, but, but we do have labs. We have lots and lots of labs, but they are just decentralized. We have mm. one big lab in Beijing that employs, I think, 100 or so scientists. They are working on something that could be realized over the next five to 10 years. But there are other labs from business units that are working on things that could be done within the next two to three years. And then what I try to do is I try to accelerate those technologies and lend them to the market because without results, without without showing uh, your return on investment, you cannot sustain innovation for long. There's so many, so many such innovation centers that come up for a year or two and then they disappear, right? Mm. Um, and so that's what, and it's not not that I knew about this before, it's just by doing that you realize and you figure out what works, what doesn't work, what kind of uh, skills you have, what kind of employees you have, what kind of gaps are there. So you should not copy someone else. You should just look into inside and see where you're strong, where you're weak, and, and try to get them stronger. So our, we are very good at um, technology. We are very good at uh, understanding customer pain points, uh, but we are not good at, when I say we, like our Intel workforce in China, which is about 10,000, 10, 12,000 strong, uh, is not good at like making those uh, crisp, pitches which we are getting the, which are training them in now in how to do an elevator pitch mm. how to do a five minute pitch so that you can advance your ideas you can get more resources for your uh, project um, and if I was in let's say let's say in the in the Silicon Valley in the headquarters the challenges might be different uh, that they can come that they don't maybe know how to quickly iterate they maybe don't know how to quickly, prototype something. So uh, so based on where you are, based on uh, the situation you are in, you need to be able to be flexible, right? So uh, I don't need to teach them the design skills here. I, I need to really teach them how to uh, understand the market, how to put the business case together and how to pitch it confidently. Yeah. It's a lot more of an organic approach, isn't it, to innovation mm. that you adopt Maybe it's influenced by your spiritual leanings as well. More patience. <laughs> but I think, you know, we yes. culturally, we've, we've sort of historically, if you look at innovation, whether it's sort of the rewriting of history, we've tended to look at innovation through the lens of geniuses like Steve Jobs and so on, but not necessarily the hundreds of people around them. I think there's some really good stories from history. You're in China, obviously. You've got the the classic story of the discovery of silk. I think the mm -hmm. story goes that the Empress of China dropped a silk cocoon into tea and the heat made the silk material soften and she pulled it out of the hot tea and it unraveled and she discovered this amazing thread coming out of the tea. And so the Empress of China discovered silk, which is 
obviously nonsense because you know if you look at history that silk had been around for a long time and it was you know there were silk farmers i suppose for hundreds of years who were farming it and it's the same with you know we think about eureka archimedes mm. and you know he was sitting in the bath and he put the crown in the bath and then he realized you know displacement of water and all that and then came running down the the road naked shouting eureka i mean that's nonsense really i mean a lot of people say when you go back to the greek times that there were probably lots and lots of people who were working on similar things mm. aligned and it just so happens that we culturally like to zero in on that one person that was the innovator as opposed to the hundreds that were around that person at the time that were involved in it. And therefore we have this view of innovation that it's the preserve of genius that, oh, look at this guy, he made this thing, he must be amazing and therefore I can't because I'm not a genius. That sort of mm. celebrity innovation. I and mean, you know, you go to, you see it at its worst, like in North Korea, for example, apparently Kim Jong-il, so the father of the current one, he invented hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> apparently the story goes that he, he saw some students that were hungry and he, he quickly grabbed some buns and, and <laughs> through magic got this patty together and put it together and said, there you go. <laughs> as a hamburger that will solve your hunger. And you can see that sort of cult of personality creates that belief that that person is responsible for innovation. And yet the re reality of innovation, it's very organic. It's long mm. process. Yeah. It's attrition almost. It's patience. And I wonder why we tend to kind of glamorize it in that way. And maybe, you know, let's speak to the spiritual side as well. What you've learned from that side, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, mm. the, the metaphysics of innovation, if you like, mm. there's such a thing, what we can learn about it through maybe stepping back and looking at it through a different lens. Mm. So, so, you know, if you want to uh, talk spiritualism, uh, you know, let's say in, in, in Buddhism, you know, they have this, uh, people think, you know, of Zen design, you know, Apple's design is Zen. It's all about aesthetics and pure. But, but the Zen monk, in, in addition to just sitting in those beautifully you know, manicured gardens and meditating, they also need to practice some, uh, they call it supreme wisdoms uh, in order to attain enlightenment. You know, and that includes generosity, uh, ethics, diligence. Um, it includes uh, patience. Um, uh, and uh, it, uh, it, of course, like meditation. And finally, they call it cultivation of wisdom, right? And, um, and by practicing all of these, like, let's just say uh, patience is one of the things, right? Uh, and like, our, like my, my journey through, through Apple as well is every day, you know, having the patience, being diligent in whatever you do. And I think that also teaches um, in, in Hinduism is whatever you do, put all your heart into it. Because when you, when, you are, uh, when you are doing something with all your heart, with all your diligence, with all your, uh, the generosity is not about just giving like something, your time, but it also, I would say, intellectual 
generosity is don't be lazy in finding solution. Like really think deeply that can I do something better? Like even when I make any slides for a talk, I would revisit the slides that are finished and I think, how could I make this better, even better, right? So I think once you do this, you know, day in and day out, you will learn so many different things, okay? The thing's not just what you are trying to solve in this moment, but you will gain so much knowledge that today you might think it's useless, but, you know, maybe like three year, 10 year down the line, you, you know, it would even subconsciously, you know, just, just come. That might be the Eureka moment, but you have been practicing it for 10 years right. until that Eureka moment happens, right? So, so, so one of the things is like, you know, when, when I moved from Apple to Intel, it was a huge culture shock for me. But then one thing that kept me going, and also I was quite, quite depressed in the first couple of years because, you know, at, at Apple, it was like, here's what you need to achieve, go figure it out, you know, don't worry about what it takes. Uh, but coming to like Intel, it was all about, oh, before you take the first step, think about the ROI, uh, you know, like justify everything you do. And I'm like, I just feel like shackled, you know, um, uh, but uh, I could learn so, so much at Intel. I could learn so much about, uh, about like technology world, like, you know, how the chip works, how the motherboard works. At Apple, I was very good at mechanical design, but here uh, I could learn that. Uh, I could learn about how software works. I could learn about, you know, the business that there is something called a bill of materials. That means to make an iPhone, it costs money. We never thought of it. You know, we just made the, <laughs> the, the best design we could. Uh, but then it's like all these realities. Um, and um, so that kept me going. And, and, and that kind of, you know, now when I'm uh, running this, this corporate uh, innovation accelerator, all those things come together, right? Um, so I think it doesn't matter what you're doing uh, as long as you're learning, as long as you're um, uh, doing everything with all your heart, no matter, like you, don't always think of return on investment on every single minute you spend because then you will waste your time just calculating the ROI rather than spend that time learning something or doing something. Even if your boss asks you to do something which you might think is stupid, if you do it, you know, like diligently, if you do it honestly, even though you think it's a waste, it's not really a waste, you know? Yeah. So um so I think the, the, maybe that's uh, kind of like the, the spiritual like take. Mm. Uh, well, there's a Zen on... thing. There's, there's, there's definitely that riff in Zen, which is like the unlabeling of things, isn't it? That you can't mm. label things. And we've talked about innovation and we've talked about the fact that you didn't use those words and you just do something with, I know you've mentioned like five or six attitudes towards daily life, if you like. Mm not to label stuff, not to categorize it in that sense, because in, in one way is it may distract from really the key motivation for doing it. And, and secondly, it may also, you know, make you look at things the wrong way. I mean, I, I go back to that Red Bull example, the skiing competition. I, I got invited by Red Bull to go and see this ski competition in Denver and uh, up in, up in the mountains. 
And I went there and I was going there as a marketer to analyze it and talk to people about marketing. And there were just people there just having fun, skiing, drinking Red Bull, partying. And nobody was really that interested in marketing, but it was marketing. <laughs> and that's, you know, now I look back on it. I mean, if I was to take a Zen approach to it, it was that as a Zen practitioner, if I was, or to put a bit of Zen into that, I would have just gone and enjoyed the thing rather than mm. trying to analyze it and put everything into a box. And we do that. We obsess about that with everything, you know, from startups to innovation to design. But just to go into, you know, I, I can't remember the five things or the six things you've named, but just to go into all of your heart and just to be mindful and in the moment mm. with something like, okay, I'm going to build this thing. I'm just going to give it my all. That's really a peak state, isn't it? That we can all kind of aspire towards. I mean, mm. you know, that doesn't happen on a daily basis, but you know, the more of that we can get, that's really what it's about, isn't it? Yeah. To be in the moment and put all your heart into what you're doing, doesn't worry about the fruits of what you're doing. Yeah, man. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, we've had some good conversations over the years and they, they kind of get deeper. I think we start off by talking about industry. So I think the first ever podcast we did together was actually before we met. I think mm. when, um, before we even physically had met, we, we talked about startups in Asia at the time. This was like mm. three or four years ago, I think. Three, three or yeah. four years, long time ago. And then we met, we did a podcast together in Shanghai round table mm. again, but it's all yeah. sort of, you know, and every time we sort of have a podcast, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And now we're talking about mm. Hinduism. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> good, man. man. Yeah. It's a result of spending about a month uh, in the mountains in, in Yunnan and, you know, being immersed in uh, like the culture and religion yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Man. Do you do you meditate? No. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, the, I really get into this meditative state when I run. Uh, so I don't yeah. like sit in one place and and like you know, it's very hard for me. I tried Wim Hof method to force myself to meditate. I just can't, you know. Uh, but when I'm running, that's what I really find meditative. Mm. Yeah. Turns yeah. it off. Yeah. 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 Awesome, man. Okay, Kapil, wonderful speaking to you today. Really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot for sharing. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, I think uh, to be continued, you know. <laughs> You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.